Dobrodošli na podcast Branding konferencije, u sklopu koje ćemo sa ekspertima iz područja brandinga i komunikacija razgovarati o fenomenima koji su obilježili turbulentne mjesece prve polovine 2020. godine, ali i onima koji nas očekuju u budućnosti kao direktna posljedica. Moje ime je Ilma Ramčević, performance video lead u Google i bit ću vaš host. Sve podcast epizode su kreirane u sklopu BK10 Online Week, održane u maju 2020. godine. Svjetska scena advertisinga ga smatra zvijezdom, zovu ga čak i britanskim Don Draperom. On je čovjek koji već 30 godina u industriji. Um, on je vice chairman u britanskom Ogilviju, jednoj od najvećih agencija. I sa nama je danas ekskluzivno da priča 60 minuta o situaciji na tržištu. Rory, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Uh, welcome to the online branding conference. Oh, it's a great pleasure. I, I only wish I could have been there in person. So uh, next year, I hope. You know, there is an unspoken prophecy that once you come to the branding conference, you come back. There's no way out. You will come back. So I'd say see you next year in Sarajevo. How does that sound? That would be perfect. That would be really wonderful. I'm, I'm so sorry to have missed it. Rory, I've read an interview of yours um, in campaign that you gave in the beginning of the lockdown and um, you said that you discovered that you love video conferencing and to quote you you said it's fun fucking tastic so i wanted to ask you two months later is that still the case uh, yes and no um by which i mean that we we seem to have spent uh, the first 54 years of my life um were spent wanting some form of video conferencing and wishing we could do it more and it never made sense to me Um, the fact that we used it so little. Um, particularly with people you already know, you can organize meetings at a fairly small cost and with absolutely no wasted time. What we've also discovered as my behavioral science team and I is that you can brainstorm over video very well. If you're a group of people who know each other well already, um, you can share and generate ideas collectively very well over Zoom. And then suddenly the pandemic happened and of course the ratio has gone the other way and I wish we could meet face to face occasionally. What's an interesting question is when this is all over, whether we find the right equilibrium between the two. And there are some interesting decisions being made. So Twitter has more or less declared that from in, in future, uh, working from home will be the norm for employees. They will still have offices, but that by default you work from home or work flexibly where you choose to work. But and I think we... Uh... Leave it to BuzzFeed to, to, to call this uh, Twitter allows employees to work from home forever. Absolutely right. And, and it's an interesting decision because I'm, I'm fairly sure that Jack Dorsey, who's the founder of Twitter, the co-founder of Twitter, uh, he said that um, uh, when they have an office in central San Francisco, they end up paying twice, once for the office and once all over again in staff salaries so that people can afford to live in San Francisco. And it's not a bad observation because mega cities, if you look at our younger colleagues, for example, um, mega cities like London are almost unaffordable. Certainly buying any property is more or less impossible uh, for anybody under about 35 in London. And so one advantage of this would be if you had two or three days in the office and then four days somewhere else, 
people would be free to live further afield. I noticed with creative people, um, that, and it's no coincidence your conference is in Sarajevo, perhaps, uh, creative people will move to the sea, but they won't move to the countryside. I don't know if you've noticed the same thing. Brighton has a huge creative community, as does Hastings and so on and so forth. So you might see you might see interesting trends in property and real estate developing when this is all over. When this is all over is 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 a sentence that one can't take lightly. Um, and I want to address right away the elephant in the in the room or in the world, as you wish. Um, what did COVID nineteen do? to marketing? What changed over the past two months? Well, interestingly, um, interestingly, I would say that in a way, if we're really astute about it as marketers, um, there's one incredibly important and beneficial thing that's happened to marketing, which is suddenly all business questions are behavioral questions. Now, if you think of it, you know, 2008 did not, the, the financial crisis didn't disrupt most people's lives very much. Some people were extremely affected by it, but most people basically carried on doing what they did before. And patterns of consumption, patterns of behavior didn't change all that much. And obviously, you know, people respond to financial shocks in all sorts of different ways. This is different because you have this collective experiment in a completely new kind of behavior. And it's possible that some of the behaviors that we've discovered will stick after this is over. But what is so important for marketers when you think about it is that four months ago, if you'd attended a company board meeting, most of the discussion would have been about operations. It would have been about, you know, are we outsourcing IT? What are we doing to, uh, you know, um, that consumer questions, questions of consumer behavior and consumer perception never figured very much in the C-suite. And they didn't figure very much in government either. You had economists or lawyers or other people who were given those problems to solve first. And I would argue that one of the interesting things that's happened is that if you're not asking questions about consumer behavior and consumption now, you're not really seriously in business. Because whether you're a car company, a hotel company, a cruise ship company, the you know, 90% of the dilemma which faces you is questions of psychology, which is how do we reestablish consumer trust in traveling on a cruise ship? Uh, you know, what is it now that will reassure people to board an aircraft? What is, what is it that people are frightened of? Which is a very interesting question, you know. So undoubtedly, travel will be very, very badly hit. Now, it may be that people are mo most frightened of being ill when away from home, or they're possibly frightened of um, uh, being stranded, which is another fear, which is what happens if there's another outbreak and I suddenly discover I can't get home. And so suddenly in every business, the, the thing which should be the center of its attention, which is the customer and the customer's metrics and the customer's viewpoint is now at least the center of attention. I love that shift of view. And you mentioned 2008 as, as a reference, uh, being different by not touching so many people, but then I'm sure some similarities emerge. Do you, do you recall any brands who did particularly well in 2008? Uh, it's complicated because there was a famous thing called the lipstick effect, where highly premium expensive lipstick sold very well. And what that was considered to be was people when they're financially a little concerned, 
um, in a sense, um, their need for treats and luxuries doesn't go away. It just takes a different form. And so it's worth remembering, by the way, that an awful lot of behavior will revert to normal when this is over. Um, and uh, Mark Ritson, a very good marketing professor, makes this point that a lot about human nature is innate and that fundamental human nature doesn't change very much. And I think that's 80% true or 70% true. Um, the only thing I would say is that <clears throat> a lot of human nature, the fundamental urge remains the same, but the manifestation or, changes. So if you take a change over time, when I was a kid, what car you had when I was 20 was everything. You know, in your, your status, your how well people thought you were doing at work, you know, was effectively part encapsulated in the car you had. And a very clever evolutionary psychologist called Jeffrey Miller said that, in fact, Facebook and Instagram and social media will change this because suddenly going on holiday somewhere exotic is more public than the car you own. It used to be we went on holiday in private and our car was public. In a large city, no one actually knows what car you own because it's parked 50 yards from your house. But where you go on holiday is shared daily with 190 of your friends. And so status seeking, arguably, among a younger generation is more focused around travel and experiences is a bit of a dangerous thing. But sharing, you know, what you're doing and your experiences is is more potent as a form of status signaling whereas what car you drive is less important and in the same way i think certain things will will stick so this will accelerate certain changes the, the adoption of video conferencing is one it's possible that it will have a slight impact on people's environmental sensitivity because you've given them a glimpse of what a slightly slower and quieter pace of life looks like and not all of it's been unattractive. You know, for many people, it's also worth remembering that, you know, many introverts have always wanted to work from home. They just haven't been allowed to do so because there's huge pressure on people to show their eagerness and willing by um, turning up at the office at eight o'clock in the morning. And so um, it's likely, I think, that we will see some change in patterns of behavior in, in the workplace. I think in marketing terms, what you're seeing in China is interesting in that you, the best advice I was ever given on looking at trends is to say there aren't actually trends, there are vectors. That people don't actually move in one direction, they become more extreme in one direction. Mm. And so, for example, when people started shopping more frequently in the UK, um, what tended to happen is they'd go to both an upmarket grocery shop and a, a discount grocery shop. So instead of doing one huge weekly shop in a mid-market store, they go up market and down market at the same time. You know, And in the same way, what you see in China uh, when the lockdown's over, there's some compensatory behavior. There's a phrase, revenge shopping, which people use to refer to going on a massive retail therapy binge of luxury goods buying to make up for lost time under lockdown. Um, but equally, you know, um, that isn't the only behavior. Some people are obviously being more cautious. What the coffee shops remark on is that people go less often, but when they do, they buy something more expensive. So people go to the coffee shop once a day rather than twice, but when they do, they tend to buy a premium treat. And so 
I think that's a wonderful bit of advice, which is generalizing and looking at averages as a way of understanding the effect of a crisis is a very, very dangerous thing to do. I'll just take one example of this. If there's one sector which has been very badly affected, undoubtedly, uh, it's the leisure and hospitality sector, because it's almost a perfect storm with uh, tourism down, business conferences all cancelled, you know, air travel down. However, it's worth remembering that um, if you are a Welsh or Scottish tourist authority, you're going to have the best year you've ever had because Britain tends to export tourists, because our climate isn't all that great. More of us go overseas than people who come here. And so suddenly there'll be another two or three million people going, to be honest, this might be the year we visit Scotland, Ireland, the Lake District, whatever it may be. And so my suspicion would be that those particular entities will do disproportionately well. And so there are always very complicated winners and losers. And to make a sort of economic generalization, which economists tend to do, everybody will be looking for value, is a gross misunderstanding of human nature. I mean, one, one possibility is, you know, you can look on the optimistic side, you know, is this good news or bad news for Airbnb? Um, with hotels, for example, I mean, my general view would be pessimistic, but this might be an opportunity where you reinvent the hotel and create a different kind of product, almost like fractional ownership, where four friends could share a hotel room, which they then, you know, for the duration of the summer. So, you know, you, if you think about it, the, the problem with the hotel is the idea of other people using the hotel. But if, if, if you share a hotel room between four friends for a month, or two months, maybe you don't mind. Um, you know, nobody, nobody on an aircraft minds sitting next door to their family. They mind sitting next door to strangers. And so if you think about it creatively, you know, maybe the trick for airlines is that, you know, essentially, you, you know, you discount the third and fourth person in a party who's traveling. So you actually have kids go half price. Um, because if you don't, you'll have to keep the middle row empty. Whereas, of course, once you've got a family, you can actually occupy the middle row because nobody minds sitting next to their own family members. So this is what I meant when I said that suddenly everything's a marketing problem deep down. Because the questions that never got asked, because during times of great stability, people just tend to take consumer behavior for granted. They don't look there for sources of innovation or change or experimentation. They focus on the kind of rational things like cost cutting, cost control, and so on. And suddenly, the biggest question of a hotel chief executive is, what do I do with to reassure people the room's been cleaned? Yeah. And that's suddenly the, the lead question. Everything else is secondary. Uh, I want to stay around insights for a moment. I know you recently um, wrote a book. It, it actually came out just uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Alchemy is the name. And you answer some of the questions I found interesting. You said why it's okay to be trivial. Uh, why did everyone, for God's sake, rush to buy toilet paper during the pandemics? And why do we behave irrationally? And um, I want to I want to understand a bit more about how we behave in pandemics and how can this insight be valuable to the marketeers who are on the call today? 
I mean, the interesting thing in Britain was that the toilet paper fear was completely irrational in that we make our own toilet paper and there are huge stockpiles of the stuff available. So there was never really the prospect of a significant shortage. Uh, what was strange, if you think about it, toilet paper is very visible. So if you're arriving at a supermarket before lockdown, anybody who's got 20 rolls of toilet paper, it's sitting on top of their trolley and you immediately see it so that you immediately think, help. Now, what's interesting is that, of course, once 20% of people start stockpiling toilet paper, it's no longer irrational to stockpile it yourself. Because even if everybody else is being irrational, um, it does me no favours if I go, ah, oh, but there isn't a risk of a shortage, if the 20% of people clear the shelves for the next week. And so it's one of those cases of contagious behaviour where, by dint of, I think, being highly visible, and by dint of getting a lot of news coverage, it, now, when you think about it, there are lots of things which make much more sense to stop I mean, tea or coffee, for example, without which life would be fairly intolerable. Um, you know, there were lots of things much more essential, you know, paracetamol, arguably, might have been a far more sensible thing to stockpile than toilet paper. But nonetheless, um, certain things uh, essentially, now, it's worth understanding this as a wider lesson in marketing, which is that a huge amount of our behavior is determined and affected by the behavior of other people. So we, to some extent, we want things because other people want them and we do things because other people do them. It's one of the reasons why brand reputations are so enduring, because once you get a collective opinion emerging about something, it's very difficult to shift. Because an opinion held by one person can be changed by a single persuasive message or a single incident, whereas a collective opinion is much more enduring. If you look at, you know, the reputations of universities or schools, they stay very constant over a large period of time because, of course, the appeal of a school isn't just in what you think about it, it's what you think everybody else thinks of it. Because you're, by, you're choosing a school very much to enhance your reputation through getting a degree there. And therefore, what I think of the school is secondary to what I think an imaginary boss might think about it. And in a car, you know, it's, it's fine for me to think of, you know, something as a prestige brand. But prestige is only really created in the collective, not in the individual. And so that's one of the long term um, returns of investment in a brand. It makes you very, very robust. And by the way, investment during a pandemic in a brand pays off all the more because how you're seen to respond to, uh, you know, questions to extremes is very much a kind of proof point for brand behavior, I think. And so I think that toilet paper thing is revealing because I think it's just a very visible manifestation of something that happens all the time. You know, certain things take off and become fashionable. Um, uh, sometimes they last only a short time, sometimes they endure. But one very interesting thing for anybody involved in promoting a category, a new category, is that it's not a linear thing. It's very slow at first, then it becomes very fast. So something like the adoption of solar panels, if you want to encourage um, more people in your country to adopt solar energy, the principal thing that will determine their decision will be how many people in their street already have solar panels. And the growth will be slow and slow and slow, and then it'll become faster and faster and faster. And it's worth, it's worth always remembering this, because if you're investing in advertising, in the early days of anything new, your advertising will look very ineffective. 
because not many people are installing solar panels for every million pounds you spend on promoting them. But in fact, the first person in a street to install solar panels in the long term may be four times as valuable as the fourth person. Because once one person has them, it's no longer so weird for the second person to have them. And so one thing that worries me about this obsession with, with advertising um, accountability and demanding that every single ad pays its own way is you have to ask the question, yes, but over what time frame? And demanding, I think, instantaneous results from advertising is to miss the point of advertising. That the whole point of advertising is that its effects are, you know, the biggest effects may actually come much later. There's a wonderful finding, by the way, just in very simple things. Uh, people are something like 50 to 60 percent more likely to order a pint of Guinness in a pub if when they walk in, there's someone already there drinking Guinness. So, you know, lots and lots of decisions which we think of as individual decisions are actually the product of the environment around us. It's interesting you mentioned reputation, and it's actually something we've been discussing over the past few days. Um, do brands who stay silent and who go dark over the past two months, are they losing reputation? Are we becoming the kind of consumers who expect every single brand that I interact with, or at least the ones I love, to do something? Um, I think it depends on what you can do. And obviously there are brands whose contribution is, is much smaller um, or who are you know, rendered slightly irrelevant. Um, generally, it pays quite well to advertise simply because apart from anything else, apart from the mood of the consumer, at a very simple level, audiences are high, TV audiences are high, and media costs are low. Now, it's also worth remembering that although that seems like a very easy equation, what a perfect time to invest in our brand, uh, you also have, for example, ABC audiences during the day, which you normally don't have to the same extent. Upmarket audiences are watching television at unusual times, perhaps. And you also have the whole family as an audience, which is interesting, which may be significant. But... The interesting thing there is there's also, of course, an ethical consideration, which is if you've had to make staff uh, go on to furlough or you've made people redundant, uh, it's not a good look to spend money on advertising because your employees are then sitting at home looking at their television going, so I see, I, I kind of paid for that. So it's not only a simple question of mathematics. You have to consider the wider effect of advertising. And for some people, uh, you know, whose staff have suffered during the recession, what's a perfectly logical business decision is a bad psychological decision in terms of the wider message it sends. Um, we, we have a lot of people here who need to make decisions for their own brands. What are some small steps they can take to be more helpful to the ever-growing needs of us uh, as demanding consumers? One thing is you can explain what you're doing to help. The other thing you can do, which I think makes a big difference, which is not often looked at, and this is an insight from behavioral science known as the behavioral science effect, uh, so, sorry, so known as the Benjamin Franklin effect, is in this moment, oddly, and it seems counterintuitive, you can ask your customers to do small favors for you. So, for example, um, if you are, for example, an online grocery provider 
you can say to your customers, obviously, you know, uh, the fewer deliveries we have to make, you know, in other words, the fewer times we have to deliver to you, the more we can deliver to other people in need. So if you can order less frequently, but larger orders, that helps. But also, why not ask your neighbors if there's anything they need? and add it on to their order because that way we can consolidate everything in one delivery rather than having to make three separate deliveries which gives us more capacity to serve the people who need it most and interestingly although it seems odd strangely we like brands we've done a favor for and i know that sounds strange you normally we think of reciprocal altruism you know you do something for me i do something back but there's a strange property in psychology, which is actually asking your consumers to do you a small favor. Uh, weirdly, makes them like you more. And it's sometimes described by, I think, um, probably um, Robert Cialdini at the University of Arizona. It's sometimes re referred to as consistency bias. If you do something nice for someone, you think, well, I'm now invested in that relationship. It would be silly for me to do something nasty. So one thing is to look at it not only in terms of what we do for our customers, which is logical, and also telling our customers what we're doing for other people and what we're doing to help. Perfectly logical. But there's a third thing you can do, which is asking. It, it's a bit like the, the, the um, Jack Kennedy question. Ask not what you can do for your customers. Ask what your customers can do for you. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm not asking, you know, but actually allowing people to feel good about themselves by feeling they're making a contribution by helping you help others uh, and gaining some degree of voluntary action among consumers strikes me as an underexplored um area to look at I, mean, I long before the coronavirus crisis happened i suggested to airlines that you could do a, i said it's never occurred to you you've always assumed that if you want someone to go on the 10 o'clock flight rather than the 12 o'clock flight to new york you have to offer them a financial incentive and i said to be honest if someone rang me up from british airways and said i notice you're going to new york on thursday um uh, look, you're perfectly free to stay on the 10 o'clock flight, but it would help us out if you went on the 12 o'clock flight. Um, I'd be perfectly happy to do that nine times out of 10. doesn't make any difference. When I arrive in New York, it's the evening, so I'm not going to do anything anyway. And, you know, assuming I've got nothing on that evening in New York, you know, nine times out of 10, I'd be perfectly happy to help them out. And you could say, look, it helps the environment, because if we can make sure that uh, you know, uh, the, the flight you're moving to is a less crowded flight, which is a bit nicer. And if we can actually balance the load of passengers between aircraft, it means we don't need to operate so many aircraft, which helps the environment. And I think simply asking nicely is one of the most underexplored um, strategies in marketing. And I think that's because economics tends to assume that everything's a trade. Everything's a trade off. And human relationships are more complicated than that. It's not a strict quid pro quo. Or I'm thinking with your airline example, uh, some extra miles would, would help make that decision if needed. But then also now uh, it could be a matter of safety and uh, spreading people out over the aircraft, making your uh, own safety better. Absolutely right. So reassuring people. In many ways, actually, the... Um, the air the airliner is less of a worry than it probably needs to be first of all because modern airliners uh, filter the air fairly rapidly um 
Secondly, uh, it's worth remembering you are with the same people for the entire duration of the journey. A bus journey, for example, or a, or a, a, a tram or mass transit, particularly underground journey, is probably much worse for super spreading. The problem, I think, with air travel is as much the airport as the actual airliner itself. And, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the fear of, of being um, uh, trapped overseas is something which I think is going to affect a lot of people. You also have, you also have, which is a very interesting question for any B2B people in your audience. And I always think that B2B marketing, because B2B spends less proportionately on media, the marketing department tends to be more of a kind of bolt-on than in consumer goods companies. But marketing thinking and the marketing mindset are every bit as valuable in B2B as in B2C. Just because you're not spending so much money in media doesn't mean that marketing thinking doesn't bring a unique perspective to problems. And um, uh, so in B2B, one real issue which does bother me is there aren't going to be conferences or trade shows to anything like the same frequency for a long, long time. And the reason is that those international events where 400 people fly in from 47 countries, spend three days together, and then all fly back again, like ski resorts, which are very, you know, very much the same thing, they're particularly frightening, I think, as super spreading events. And so how business, business, there's an opportunity here, in fact, business needs to invent different and new ways for businesses to communicate with each other. And I don't, you know, there's an opportunity, I think, to create business television in this instance, where you hold conferences with a very small, mostly local audience, but you broadcast them to a much wider audience. Now, just to give an example, um, for the last uh, seven or eight years, we've held a behavioral science conference for Ogilvy uh, down by the sea. It's usually in Kent, Folkestone or Deal or this year was going to be Margate. And we have about four or 500 people come and we fly academics from uh, Yale and Harvard and an eminent sort of Nobel Prize winning economists and so forth. And we fly them over and we get them to speak. Now, interestingly, this year we're making it global. It's going to start in Australia and end up in, the, in Hawaii. We're going to get speakers both live and recorded from all over the world. We've promoted it, and so far we have 10,000 people registered. If you are interested, by the way, nudgestock.co.uk is the event, N-U-D-G-E-S-T-O-C-K.co.uk, and you, you register, and it's free. Now, 10,000, okay, it's not a bad, you know, we're, by the time we finish, if we get to 30,000, that's a football stadium. That is a truly massive event in terms of the number of people there. and so. Something, I think, in business needs to be invented to fill this gulf. Because without the usual trade fairs, conferences, and social events, which I think will be either, if not outlawed, will be highly unfashionable, because no brand wants to be responsible for a new outbreak. Okay. You know, imagine if you're Nestle and your marketing conference leads to a sudden new outbreak in, let's say, um, Venice you know, which is where you decided to hold it, then it's a very, very bad look for the organiser. And Funny so... Say this then, because then, uh, we have the corporate communication lead for Nestle from all of the region actually talking right after you. So we can 
We can also hear from her. From her oh, that's brilliant. So I'll, I'll feel, Nestle banned all business travel in late February. So about three weeks, I, I was very impressed by this, actually. I thought it was an incredibly decisive and impressive decision, which is we're not going to contribute, you know, we're not going to have our events or meetings contribute to the spread of this in any shape or form. And so for about three weeks before lockdown, actually four weeks almost, before lockdown was imposed in the UK, Nestle had already basically grounded all its staff, uh, which I thought was uh, very, very commendable as a behaviour. Um. It's worth remembering, you know, there is at the other side, there's the reputational risk. Uh, one conference by, a, by an athletic uh, clothing manufacturer, which I won't name, in Edinburgh, did seem to lead to an early outbreak uh, there. And um, uh, so there's something very interesting. One thing, by the way, about Zoom, by the way, is it's tremendous news, I hope, for people in... Um, uh, First of all, for people in, uh, in in lower wage economies, because I think it proves you can perform uh, very valuable services for people remotely. And, you know, I, I shouldn't be saying this as someone from a kind of high wage economy like London and the Southeast. Um, but actually, I, I was saying to a South African audience, look, there's no reason why um, you know, you can't found an entity and service clients in the rest of the world. You're in a very good time zone, after all. Um, and the opportunity, I think, to create a Zoom-based business really interests me. I mean, I love it with Ogilvy because I've talked to people. I had a meeting yesterday where some one person was in Perth, one person was in Kenya, and one person was in the United States. Two people were down the road from me, coincidentally. Um, I've had meetings with Ogilvy Tbilisi. And suddenly I feel in a weird way that I've become much more international in my outlook since I've been unable to travel. And um, I think, you know, I think we were extraordinary in failing to spot business opportunities from this technology. And I've often wondered, let's be cynical here, if the travel and entertainment costs in a business had been incurred by junior staff, rather than by the senior management. I think there would have been a drive to adopt video conferencing six years ago. Mm. I think, to be honest, the fact that it tended to be the senior people who are sitting there in seat 1A and staying at the Four Seasons for three days uh, led to far less pressure. Now, the one thing you don't want to do is don't make people stay in crap hotels. If there's one thing that will make you despise your employer, but nonetheless, the encouragement of this technology, which is patently significant for any service business, um, uh, the, the fact that it took a pandemic to encourage us to experiment is a terrible reflection on our imagination in many ways. And I, I, I want to go back to what you said on technology. Um, I heard another uh, interview of yours, or was it in, in an article, where you said a lot of these companies, especially the Silicon Valley companies, they're not solving technology, even though we consider them tech companies. No. They're solving for this psychological need that suddenly gets identified. Let, let, let's start with a really interesting thought experiment, which I always notice that, particularly in a business setting, Everybody is in a particular mode. They're wearing a suit. They're sitting behind a desk or behind a conference table. And a 
more than anything else, they want to appear rational and businesslike and cut and dried, and they want to minimize ambiguity, and they want to adopt maps and models which give a very clear recommendation as to what you should do, and so forth. And so as a result, when anybody's in a business setting, they want to look businesslike. When they're in a tech setting, they want to demonstrate their technological prowess. Um, in all these things, we tend to have this preferred model of looking at the world. Now, here's a nice little thought experiment, which I created just a, a week ago. Let's imagine you're in a business meeting and someone, for whatever weird reason, asked the question, why are there more fish restaurants when you go next to the sea? OK, so whenever you're next to the seaside, you know, about half the restaurants are serving fish or seafood or something like that. And if you're in a business meeting, you'll go, it's because of, you know, supply, logistics, uh, ready access to high quality products. OK, uh, you know, low transportation costs, low distribution costs. Da, 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 da. And that's a perfectly plausible answer in a business setting. And it makes you look really intelligent because you go, Matt Sutherland, he's a really business-like person. The only problem is, I don't think that's true. If that were true, you'd expect to see lots of fish restaurants five miles inland. But actually, you don't. The restaurants five miles inland are just serving beef and chicken like everywhere else, okay? And secondly, you can probably buy just as good fish really cheaply at the market in London as you can uh, relying on an unreliable supply from local providers, okay? I think the reason psychological. I think it's because fish taste better when you're by the sea. I think that when you're sitting by a beach or when you're sitting in the sunshine next to the seaside, that eating fish is fundamentally more enjoyable than when you're inland. Now, the interesting thing about that is that we favor the business explanation, the McKinsey explanation, the Harvard Business Review explanation over the psychological explanation. And I think in technology companies, the same thing happens. They want to prove that they can win through superior technology, not through superior marketing, because that's where your status comes from. Marketing to a technologist is seen as cheating. In fact, even Steve Jobs came across considerable hostility from the tech crowd at Apple, the company he built, where people would say, I don't really get what Steve even does. I mean, he can't even code. Okay. And the point is that if you look at many, many interesting technologies, they're really, their value is really based on their accidental or intentional, and it's often accidental, discovery of a behavioral or perceptual quirk of human nature. So a, a very interesting quirk of human nature would be in terms of the pain we experience waiting for a taxi, it is less closely related to the duration of the wait and more closely related to the degree of uncertainty. Now, Uber, whether deliberately or accidentally, solved that problem very significantly, not by making the taxi appear any quicker, but by showing you a map where you could see where your taxi was and you could see it was on the way. And if it was a bit delayed, if it was stationary for five minutes, you could tell yourself a reassuring story like, oh, he's stuck at those traffic lights. Um, I'll have another cup of tea and um, uh, um, he'll be here in 10 minutes, okay? Uber in some ways owes its billion dollar valuation to discovering a quirk of human perception. Red Bull owes its billion dollar value really to discovering a quirk of human perception, which is if you sell a product as a drug or as a placebo, 
on its medicinal properties or its psychotropic properties, not on its drink taste properties. The things that make it a terrible drink, i.e. tasting weird, costing a lot of money and coming in a tiny can, make it a brilliant placebo or brilliant drug. All the things, so when we frame Red Bull as a drug, we think that's brilliant because it tastes weird. We want our drugs to taste a bit weird, okay? You don't want paracetamol to taste like black currants. doesn't make sense, okay? It's got to taste weird. Diet Coke's actually made to taste deliberately a bit more bitter than ordinary Coke, precisely so that um, people believe it's a diet drink. There's some detectable sacrifice in the taste. And if you take Nespresso, which is a billion-dollar business, I would say, that comes from the bizarre quirk that nobody really thought that you could get people to pay 60 pence for a cup of coffee which they consumed at home. However, when you pay for the pod, you don't pay for the packet of ground coffee. Your frame of reference changes. So you compare the price not with Nescafe or Maxwell House. You compare the price with Starbucks. Dyson would be another company that doesn't make sense entirely. No one would have thought there was a market for a 600 euro vacuum cleaner. Um, Amazon Prime is largely a brilliant psychological idea. Now, all of those ideas would have been met with extraordinary hostility by the rational contingent in any company C-suite. You know, Red Bull completely failed in research. Nothing about its pricing makes immediate sense. Um, Dyson, um, Zoom, which I think is, by the way, a billion-dollar psychological success. No, I'll be fair to Zoom. The technology is better because it's designed for the cloud. So let's be clear about that. I'm not dismissing the role of technologists there. But part of the genius of Zoom, most investors, when approached by Zoom, basically replied, why the hell are you moving into the video calling space? This space is completely overcrowded and it's done. You're competing against Google, you're competing against Apple, you're competing against Facebook, you're competing against Amazon. Everybody's trying to compete in this space. And why on earth are you coming along with this basically mature technology? And I think the answer is that not only was Zoom, I think, perceptibly better, um, which I think it is, but principally by attaching a URL to a meeting. So you clicked on the link and the meeting started within seconds. Zoom achieved a psychological breakthrough that none of their competitors, Skype had been around for 10 years, but Skype was fiddly. You had to call someone. You had to wait for them to, um, uh, the burden was on you to get the other person's attention. It was modeled on a phone call. And I genuinely think in the case of Zoom, it's a it's a psychological success story. And all of those cases, what's interesting, also true with Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime was Bezos's idea. Most people within Amazon tried to discourage Jeff Bezos from creating Amazon Prime. But I think it's one of the most ingenious and brilliant marketing ideas, psychological ideas uh, of the century. Those of you who are fans of the wonderful marketing professor Scott Galloway, We'll, we'll see that he basically says that a marriage is more profitable than a one-night stand. It fundamentally changes the nature of the felt relationship between the company and the consumer. In a glorious way, the way the human brain perceives it, every time I order something from Amazon on Amazon Prime, I feel I'm getting my money back. I feel I'm winning. 
that's how fast it arrives. I want to ask you, we spoke about uh, the consumers, we spoke about tourism. Um, there are many people here from different industries. What advice would you give them in these uncertain times? What are the questions they should ask themselves to innovate in their business and to come out of this crisis on a positive end? It's very interesting because an economist would say, if you're running a hotel, it's very easy. All you do is drop the price. I would argue that dropping the price of a hotel is a terrible thing to do because hotels are very reluctant to do it. Because once you've sold a room for £100, you kind of lose the rights to charge £200 for it. Mm. And so we judge hotels partly by their price, by the way. One question is, can you reinvent it? Another question is to look for really ingenious psychological um, solutions. The Hilton chain, I notice, has partnered with Lysol Bleach and with, I think it's a bunch of Harvard academics, or it might be some academics at Stanford who are experts on virology. And they, are, they have created a kind of, you know, a, um, a multidisciplinary group. Now, one thing you can do, I would argue, is do things that you wouldn't do normally, like partner with competitors, because this is actually not a brand issue. It's a category issue. And so say, you know, for two competing hotel brands to say we're owned by different people, but we're working together to solve this problem. And when one of us has an idea, we share it. Okay, and so an interesting question we asked about hotels, and this is when I when I said that everything's now a marketing problem, I mean it, because a lot of people will want to do a little bit of cleaning of their hotel room when they arrive to reassure themselves. But you can't really leave a bucket and a sponge and, a, a, you know, and three sprays out on the table because it kind of says to your valued guest, OK, this is your problem. But you could have inside the cupboard with the ironing board discreetly, you could have three or four cleaning products in a spray. Uh, you could have an interesting device where um, the consumer is texted a picture of their room being cleaned 24 hours or 48 hours before they turn up. And they're texted a picture of the room being, being uh, cleaned. And then they're texted the door being sealed to show that nobody's been into the room for the next 48 hours. Or you could have a device where you tap your key card against something and it basically confirms the last time anybody entered your room. Uh, but the interesting thing is, um, there are other interesting questions. What on earth do you do with elevators? And I, that's a very, very big problem if you're a multi-story building. On the other hand, if you're a building where the hotel um, is only on one or two floors, and you have the facility for people to enter the room through the front rather than the back without going through the common parts, arguably, you know, you've got a marketable community there. You're touching on, an, on, a, on exactly the next question we got from the audience. Uh, restaurants and pubs got badly hit by the yeah. pandemic. Uh, any innovative idea for them to go on and get back on track? Um, patently, and we've seen this, and I would, I, if... If this is not solved satisfactorily by the market, I think there's room for short-term government intervention here, by the way, which is, first of all, restaurants can get into the delivery business. Um, uh, patently, any restaurant which has outdoor space, which is one great advantage of pubs, which is 
even more so, I suspect, in, in Croatia, for example, uh, than, in, um, uh, uh, than in, in the UK. But even in the UK, outside cities, pubs tend to have an outdoor space. And that becomes usable. Um, it is even possible to serve beer out of doors. One of the things now, I'm going to have a huge caveat here. I am not an epidemiologist, okay? So do not take this as medical advice. It's simply the job of a behavioral scientist is to ask an epidemiologist, what behavior do you want to see? And then we'll tell you how to generate it, okay? My hunch would be that outdoor events um, uh, are much less likely to lead to the transmission of this disease than indoor events. Anything outdoors, it looks as though events with singing, like religious activities um, or sporting events where people sing and shout lead to greater transmission than events where people speak at a relatively low volume. Um, I'm not sure why this is. And to be honest, I think the scientific establishment has slightly failed in trying to develop models. Now, this is a lesson for marketers here, okay? They're trying to develop models with the data they already have rather than asking what data you actually need. And there's a wonderful person who's a very senior person in Google Analytics, um, who essentially um, distinguishes between data, which is what you're given, and quisita, from the Latin again, which is what you seek. And she argues that we make far too much fuss about looking at data, which just happens to be the information that happens to be generated. And we try and develop models based on that without asking a secondary question, yes, but what don't we know? And I would argue there are a lot of things we needed to know about this virus, which nobody tried to find out. For example, does the initial dose affect the severity of the condition? Um, where is transmission most likely to take place and where does it very rarely take place? I met my PA, um, the first person really from work I've met in five weeks. We met in the garden, okay? And I stayed, you know, eight, nine feet apart at almost all times. We did exchange a little bit of paperwork. Um, but um, uh, my hunch would be that once we know from epidemiological studies, there are ways in which you can rescue things. What you don't want, again, there's an interesting question, which is you don't want crowding. So it's possible that you open up by pre-reservation to a limited number of people every night. Because the fear, you know, the fear of turning up in an empty pub and then more and more people arrive is something that's quite fearful. Um, uh, you know, so... There are there are solutions where you can pivot. Obviously, none of this is going to substitute for the level of business that existed beforehand, uh, unless you're very lucky, I, I would argue. Um, other things you can do is you can, if you're cash constrained, you can sell. Let's look at Amazon Prime as an example, okay? If we have a village tea shop, okay? Now, the poor tea shop opened about four days before lockdown. And I feel they've obviously had to close. I feel unbelievably sorry for these people who started a small business. Now, if you wrote to me and said, if you pay, um, uh, you know, if you pay 300 pounds, we're offering membership of this tea shop. And so for the next three years, after you've paid your tea shop prime membership, um, actually, we'll give you free tea every time you come. You'll have to pay for the cake. You'll have to pay for the scones. Sorry, this is a slightly British 
conception. Okay, you'll have to pay for the scones and the sandwiches and the cake. We're not going to give that for free, but actually your tea and coffee will be free here for the next three years with purchase of a cake. Okay, I would have taken up that deal, actually. And it would have helped with their cash flow. It's worth remembering tea is a very high margin product. I mean, the cost of providing someone with a cup of tea, the marginal cost is pennies. So that's a relatively inexpensive thing to give away in some respects. One big takeaway I get from everything you're saying tonight is that um, we, are, we, we are not to be afraid to ask our consumers to no. help. Um, I, I, I have a final question from the audience, and it goes back to tourism. It says, um, you mentioned the situation that will and how it will help the UK tourism. Do you think, what can smaller countries like Bosnia and Herzegovina here, um, what can we do in this situation to rebrand our tourism to make it popular and stronger? Here, I think, is... Very simply, the value of behavioral science in business and the value of marketing in science, by the way, at its best, um, because um, marketing shouldn't be confined to communications. It should be, broadly speaking, as I said, the value of marketing is it, take, it brings the customer view and the human view into the boardroom. That's its job. And the real value of marketing is not that it's a perfect science. It doesn't solve your problems by me saying, if you do that instead of doing this, you will get a 30% return. I, don't allow, I, I can't promise that degree of certainty about human behavior. But once you do bring these solutions in, it massively expands the possible solution set. So the number of means of solving a problem and the number of inexpensive means of solving what looks like an expensive problem become far, far bigger once you include the possibility of using psychology to solve the problem rather than using engineering, technology or economic incentives. Okay. And so, for example, with one retailer, we said, well, people want to be able to buy things from you, but they don't want to dither at the shelves. Why don't you bundle your goods together into multi-packs where you have a cleaning multi-pack, a fresh food multi-pack, a long life food multi-pack, and someone can drive up and just go, I want one cleaning multi-pack and two fresh food multi-packs. They can open the trunk of their car. You can pop it in the back, pay contactlessly or pay by app in this case and drive off. And so that's a way of solving a problem. It also has the advantage, by the way, that consumers won't be encouraged to panic buy because you can simply substitute goods with those that are available. So it makes much better use of available resources by pre-packaging solutions rather than individual brands. As the, now, interestingly, we came up with that idea. And then I discovered two days after we thought we were very clever that in Wuhan in China, they'd been doing it for some weeks. Now, in the same way, one possible interesting thing is that you could conceivably create corridors of tourism. So let's take an airport like Pule. What's the nearest airport to, to um, Sarajevo, by the way? The nearest one. There's another one in Bosnia, in Tuzla. Uh, we're in going to fly you there next year. It's phenomenal. So one thing is, if you had an air route between... Birmingham and, and Tuzla or Birmingham and Pula, which is further north, I know, isn't it? Yeah, I know that. I'm not totally ignorant. Okay. But Pula Airport probably has five flights a day. You know, the risk of using it is relatively trivial because it's a tiny airport. Um, 
if everybody using it is from two countries rather than from 10, again, the risk of cross-infection is lower. So creating bridges might be possible. The other possibility, of course, is that, uh, and some, some tourist boards have done this, is this is the great, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, this is the great opportunity for Bosnians to enjoy their own coast without it being flooded with bloody Brits. Okay. <laughs> so you can also promote this to your indigenous market as, you know, just as, as Venice says, for one year only, Venice is just for Italians. And so, you know, one possibility is you, you change your target audience. One other thing is you have to understand that this indiscriminate, um, you know, airports where you literally have people from 50 countries, uh, 10, year, 10 hours after they've left, rubbing shoulders with people from 49 other countries in close proximity indoors. You know, the, the issue there becomes highly problematic, I have to say. And so, um, uh, on the other hand, if you said, okay, we're only going to accept tourism from these countries, which is at a level of, of, of limitation where track and trace becomes possible, should any outbreak occur. So you can trace it back and you can then quarantine people if necessary. Um, uh, then, it, and, and likewise, you take flights from smaller airports. So suddenly it's, it's Tuzla to South End Airport rather than Tuzla to Heathrow. That's one possible solution. Rory, I feel like we could keep throwing problems at you for another few hours and you will just be coming up with solutions. Rory, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, I can offer a non-discounted hotel room with cleaning supplies in it for you next year in Sarajevo. I can't wait. I mean, seriously, it, it's a part of the world I absolutely love. And um, having, said, you know, having said that, I will be traveling a lot less. What I, what I, my aim for the future is to travel less, but to travel better. I think those occasions where you travel somewhere on business or on a weekend break for two days, I think uh, deeply, I think is silly. You actually learn nothing about the country. You know, uh, how much do you learn about France by holding a selfie stick in front of the Mona Lisa? Virtually nothing. Okay. And so one of the things I would like to see the world adopt is uh, when it returns to travel is proper immersive travel where you get to learn something about the place you go as opposed to the kind of shallow, the shallow kind of checkbox tourism, the bucket list tourism I think we've seen. That's a wish, whether I'll get it or not, I don't know. And my book is available in Serbo-Croat, I hasten to add. Wow, that's a nice one. So Alchemy is out and available. It, it, it is absolutely already published. Yeah. That's great news. We're waiting for some copies as well. It's not a science. I don't bring solutions. I hope what I can at least bring is better questions. We love it. Rory, thank, thank you, you so very much, much indeed. Thank you. Enjoy your tea. You too, and have a wonderful event. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Rory. Hvala vam na slušanju podcast sesije Branding konferencije. Čujemo se uskoro u novoj epizodi.